Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. We like Castlevania, don't we? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian, also known as Cosmos. Hello. Today's episode is It's Not Over Yet, Snake, the third of our episodes on Metal Gear Solid 1998. After examining Snake and his allies last time, we turn to the antagonists of the game, the high-tech special forces unit Foxhound. But first, spoiler warning for this and every episode, everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Today, we're going to look at the terrorist unit Foxhound, who have seized the nuclear disposal facility on Shadow Moses Island. But we should mention up front that the bosses of the Metal Gear Solid series are some of the most iconic in video games, often considered a selling point of these games, in fact. Uh, I would say games uh, one through three are the ones I specifically associate with this uh, high regard, but I think you're going to make the case for Revengeance here as well. Revengeance! That's yeah. That's the the revengeance bosses are uniformly good, so they also count, and they make they make full of, they make full use of the uh, tactical slashing action gameplay, whatever they called it. They had a name for it. Oh yes, they did. Uh, but yeah, so that makes me even more excited. Uh, looking forward to play that game for this podcast. As some of the latter Metal Gear Solid games, they have some memorable boss fights. But I think the first couple games, and I think one and then three especially, really set a super high bar that's been tough to tough to meet ever since. Before we go into each individual member of Foxhound, let's give a brief history of the unit itself. It was officially established in 1971 by Big Boss as a unit within the U.S. Army. The name Foxhound comes from a quasi-canonical source of the game Portable Ops, which Hideo Kojima did not uh, direct. But in that game, Big Boss and Roy Campbell run a counter unit to the rogue Fox unit, and thus Foxhound was born. Big Boss would leave Foxhound for Militaris Sans Frontieres in 1972, but he would return about 20 years later to take command of Foxhound once again. In 1995, Solid Snake would join as a rookie, and Big Boss would serve as his commanding officer. This would essentially be the events of Metal Gear 1 for the MSX in 1987. Following the defeat of Outer Heaven, uh, Foxhound becomes a known unit popularly in the United States. Uh, SEAL Team 6 would be a real-world analog here, just uh, just like Solid Snake becomes a legend, so does the unit he works for, Foxhound. Following the events of the Outer Heaven Uprising, Roy Campbell takes command, and uh, he would be the commander for the Zanzibar Land Disturbance, the events of Metal Gear Solid two, or Metal Gear Two. And following the events of Zanzibar Land, both Campbell and Snake would retire from the Foxhound unit. In the year two thousand, Liquid Snake takes command. <laughs> I, I had that Jeff Goldblum in the year two thousand uh, going through my head when. Yeah, I- that's what I was thinking. But Liquid Snake takes command uh, in the year 2000. 
Uh, he had previously been acquainted with uh, Revolver Ocelot and Psycho Mantis, which is something that we'll bring up when we get to them in later games. And then Dr. Clark and Naomi Hunter were brought in to do uh, gene therapy and scientific research for the unit. Uh, as we discussed a bit last time, uh, this uh, Gray Fox was uh, patient zero for this gene therapy and research. That pretty much catches us up to the events of Shadow Moses. The unit, uh, Foxhound, and the next generation genome soldiers that are along with them call themselves the sons of Big Boss uh, when they make their terrorist demands, which are $1 billion and the remains of Big Boss himself. All right, let's dive into the Foxhound unit. First up, Decoy Octopus, voice Greg Eagles. Not much is really known about Decoy Octopus and not much gets to be known. There really isn't much to say. As we talked about last time, uh, Decoy Octopus is the boss fight that never was. Uh, he poses as Donald Anderson, and then he is killed by the fox dye disease you were injected with. At the time that it occurs, you as the player and you as Solid Snake have no idea what's going on. One of the fun things I do like about uh, Decoy Octopus is that in the original 1998 instruction manual, uh there was no specific gender tied to him. Uh, it specifically said that his gender was unknown, though they often just refer to him as he. Uh, when Vulcan Raven is dying, he uses the he pronoun for decoy uh, throughout his spiel. So um, I did like some of the ideas here of making the master of disguise almost invisible to the narrative that you don't even realize his impact until well after. And uh, they did choose to go with an octopus instead of a chameleon, which I think you wanted to talk to a little bit. Yeah, because chameleons specifically are not actually that good at camouflage. It's more of a mood thing. Like they don't, it takes them a while to actually adapt to their surroundings like that. Whereas the mimic octopus, which was coincidentally discovered in the, in the Pacific in 1998, is like does it in like five seconds. And they're like, uh, I mean, the octopus is like a famous analogy for you know like manipulation behind the scenes you know like the other james bond reference like specter yeah or whatever they all the names they've had yeah and i think that's that's a better like that's a more fun decoy octopus sounds stranger whereas a decoy chameleon sounds kind of like almost redundant it's a it's a better name yeah for sure i think kind of what you were getting at is that the tentacles of an octopus kind of work as like the puppet strings of a marionette. So it kind of implies some level of control. Also, it's associated with things like Hydra and Spectre. So it has a little more cachet like that. And also, we've talked plenty about Marvel Comics already, but there's basically the same character in uh, the Spider-Man universe called the Chameleon, who is a master of disguise. So I like going the separate way as well. And in Metal Gear Solid 4, in the commercials that precede the game itself, they actually show some of the amazing cam camouflage abilities of the octopus. Uh, not decoy, but the actual animal. And it's pretty astounding. Honestly, if you're bored, just Google octopus camouflage on YouTube. There's yeah. plenty, plenty of great stuff to see there. Moving on to a legitimate boss, Revolver Ocelot, uh, voiced by Patrick Zimmerman in this game. Revolver Ocelot. Oh, man, he he's a classic. He's a legend, but something we don't really get to know about until a little bit later in this game series. Uh, voiced by Patrick Zimmerman, 
we'll skip over baby Ocelot and his early life because that's a whole thing. But prior to the Shadow Moses incident, Ocelot spent much of his career working for various Soviet and Russian intelligence intelligence agencies and joined Foxhound in 1999. He would become the unit's interrogation specialist. Backstory we will get later. And uh, you fight him, uh, I believe, in the second floor basement uh, with the arms tech president, Kenneth Baker, tied up in the middle with all sorts of tight wire strings wired up to some C4. Um, It might be Semtex, or there's a very specific word that the first two Metal Gear Solid games use. Uh, But essentially, C4, bomb, thing that blow up. Uh, That's the setting for this boss battle. It's hard to figure out. This is the first time you play the game. It's hard to figure out what, like how you're supposed to look at that. Like actually, like doing getting attacks off correctly is difficult to kind of suss out at the start. That's like the first real fight you have to do. It's the first fight you have to do. I feel like uh, you have the shootout outside of Decoy Octopus's uh, prison cell or Donald Anderson's prison cell. You have a better gun. You have a better gun there. I feel like I don't know. Or you have you have isn't Merrill there too? Yeah, you have Meryl there. Yeah, so it's, yeah, that's that, that's easier. It's just a bunch of jobbers running in. I don't love that initial battle either, just because you kind of just have to soak in the damage you take. There's no real way to evade with the mechanics of the original Metal Gear. And then the revolver ocelot battle, you have to kind of navigate the arena more so, um, as opposed to just kind of stand in one place and shoot. Uh, So there are basically four pillars. You can't really operate in the middle of the room because of the aforementioned C4 and the wires. So you just basically have to go around the perimeter, uh, shoot at Revolver, try to avoid his bullets, which can bounce off the walls, by the way. And also you have an ammo gauge for uh, Revolver because whenever he takes his six shots, he has to reload something that he really, really enjoys doing. <laughs> with the greatest handgun ever made. Oh yeah, I wonder who gave it, who who told him that was a good handgun for him. Uh, if you tw- if you twist his elbow, it increases the recoil. Yeah, perfect for his maneuver. Of course, we're referring to the fact that uh, Ocelot will pick up the revolver as his favorite weapon from Big Boss's recommendation in Metal Gear Solid Three Steak Eater. More to come on that. Uh, So let's dive into some of the themes that play with Revolver Ocelot, because initially his aesthetic is a thing worth talking about. He's a Russian dressed up as an American cowboy. Um, He's basically live action role playing to maintain cover, because as we'll find out through this game and especially through the series, that he's a quadruple agent in the long run. There might even be a couple more levels to add on to there. So he's kind of role-playing as this American cowboy that feeds into the, having that cult single-action army. And th- honestly, one of the things that pops into my mind when I describe Revolver Ocelot is Hans Gruber from Die Hard saying how all Americans think of themselves as John Wayne and you know they're going to ride off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. So I really love Ocelot's hard western look because i also just love westerns and i'm guessing kojima loves westerns just as much as i do Mm -hmm. as mentioned he was the unit's interrogation specialist and we will learn a little bit later in the game following this boss battle that he is indeed a master of torture he's the one who has you strapped up to the table uh where i believe he's electrocuting you uh through that board and you know whether you submit to the pain or um, are able to endure uh, determines Meryl's outcome, whether she lives or dies from the events of the game. Reminder, 
per canon, she lives regardless. So, And then I think it's worth kind of noting because when we're going to talk about the themes, especially next time, about military and all the anti-imperialism that's in these games, uh, this torture display is also kind of before torture was a big part of the discourse, uh, which would happen following the War on Terror and, you know, the re-emergence of Guantanamo Bay and, um, you know, Abu Ghraib and all that. So again, Metal Gear predicted torture. I'm sure torture predates it, but... Predicted torture discourse. Yes, it, it definitely predates the torture discourse. During your encounters with Ocelot in this game, um, he does reveal that he served in Afghanistan and Africa in his past. Uh, two things we'll see very specifically in Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain. And he mentions that he still has contacts within the Russian military. He'll name drop Gerlukovich later in the game. That will tie into the events of Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, unlike many of the other bosses in this game, when you defeat him, you don't actually kill Revolver. Instead, uh, the cyborg ninja, Gray Fox, intervenes and cuts off uh, his hand in one of the weirdest line readings of the entire game. My hand! Yeah. <laughs> he has the perfect, the you know, gruff, Western-sounding voice, and then when his hand cuts off, he just... Uh, Patrick Zimmerman just pretty much sounds like Patrick Zimmerman. <laughs> he just my hand. Okay, it's not that high pitched or whatever, but it just it just it's, yeah, it's it, a thing. it loses his affect completely, and he just yells out like ah shit, <laughs> which is really funny. Yeah, it's very funny in retrospect, knowing what you know about Ocelot and, and and like you said, his performative cover he's got going on, which I really am a big fan of. What makes it even more fun is when you get into four and he's just, like completely gone inside his cover. So there's no more performance at all. It's just what he is. The most overacted man. The most dramatic man in the world. I love him. Oh my god, he is so dramatic. MDS4 Ocelot is, is the best thing about that game. For sure. He is having so much fun. It's like that you know, really bad movie. And Metal Gear Solid 4 isn't really bad. But it's that bad movie that's saved by that one performance. Ocelot is giving that one per- performance in that game. Diving into the mechanics of the battle, something we want to talk about because the mechanics of these battles often inform the themes or the character. We didn't talk too much about Gray Fox last time, but that one is kind of set up as you fight him mano a mano because it's kind of playing on that ninja aesthetic and it's kind of reliving the memories of Metal Gear 2 where you fought Gray Fox in a minefield mano a mano. Uh, So the mechanics of battles and these boss battles is very important to the characters and themes of this game. So as we go through Foxhound, we're going to look at that. And with Revolver Ocelot, the first thing is just your weapons, your mode of battle. It's pistol versus pistol. It's a very classic shootout, again, very Western idea. So you're already seeing that his role playing is not just the costume he wears like it's Halloween, but it's a full-on performance, like you were saying, especially in later games. The entire arena, like we mentioned, the entire middle of the screen is kind of cut off to you because there is a tortured dying guy in the middle, and there's all sorts of wires and booby traps. Uh, It's very torturous and sadistic, like, say, Ocelot. And uh, these, you know, this kind of is a foreshadowing of the Ocelot character that will, you know, know, love, hate, whatever, in later in this game, later in the series. Who could hate Ocelot? No one hates Ocelot. I mean, maybe they hate them within the universe, but yeah, I do like I do like that you can just shoot 
Kenneth Baker on accident or shoot the C4 on accident. Like you, you kind of assume, especially at that point, 98, you would assume that that stuff is just like walled off. Like you can't touch it, but no, you can absolutely just mess up and kill everyone. Yeah. And have to restart. One thing I generally like about Metal Gear Solid bosses, and it definitely improves throughout the series, is that the environments and the bosses are all adhering to the same systems at all time. So uh, it's no- nothing's really there for show. Uh, that's why I mentioned Revolver Ocelot's ammo is shown on screen, because uh, it's very core to both the gun he's using and just this game is a survivalist game in the sense that all the materials and inventory you attain, uh, you always have to keep watch on it. You're never going to be OP in terms of ammo and guns relative to what you're actually doing. So that's why the game kind of teaches you not only just to watch for yourself with these systems, but to watch how other, you know, whether it's bosses or just random soldiers, how the systems also play on them, usually in a very similar way as Solid Snake. Uh, the last note I had on Ocelot was simply that I was just honestly shocked when he kind of showed up again near the end of the game. Um, I did realize that, you know, he didn't die when Gray Fox cut his hand, but the fact that he emerged as a major character in the last act of the game was not something that I specifically anticipated. And then the post credits tease elevates his character even more. Yeah, I guess you wouldn't really assume the first boss to sh- keep showing back up. That's not generally how that's structured. Yeah, it's. Ex- I think that's exactly what I'm getting at. I think if they had no other in- intentions for him, he still is such a like obviously such a fun character to write and to to have around. That I think it's pretty obvious he's going to stay around if you like on any repeat playthroughs. Yeah, for sure. It definitely enhances with the repeat playthroughs. And I think the fact that it is the first boss, and it's just not common for video games to really circle back to a boss. I mean, very few video games were telling elaborate narratives like this. But still, you think of the first boss as usually as like a test for the player to make sure you have to be at least this good if you wish to continue with this game. So the fact that he serves that purpose very much, but he also becomes a much bigger character. So um, just one thing I appreciated. Again, these might be very simple or very rudimentary in terms of narrative uh, storytelling, but in terms of video game storytelling and in terms of design of game where boss fights fit into general game narratives, this seemed new to me. And again, I was 14 years old, so I was a dumbass back then, but it felt new nonetheless. Now, on to one of the most iconic bosses of Metal Gear Solid, perhaps the most iconic, to be honest, is Psycho Mantis, voiced by Doug Stone. Like Ocelot, we have backstory with him that we'll save. He is a main player in Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain, and we'll go a little deeper into Mantis's backstory then. What we do know is that he meets Liquid at an early age, and then he would later go on to work for the KGB until the collapse of the Soviet Union, at which point he would then come over and start working for the FBI, eventually going freelance. Liquid would recruit him for Foxhound in 2000, and then the boss fight with Psychomantis occurs in the commander's office after he possesses Meryl. And before we even get to him and his boss fight, we should mention you kind of are teased about Psychomantis when you uh, first uh, fight off the guards escaping Donald Anderson's cell. You see his like specter floating as Meryl runs off with her you know, butt wiggle, uh, for lack of a better word. And then I think you also wanted to mention the hallway and the buildup to 
uh, the Psycho Mantis arena for fighting him. Yeah, the way it, it kind of pans back, when it shows like his perspective, and it makes you feel like that, especially on repeat playthroughs. Like the first time through, I don't know if you're supposed to really know what's going on. That's kind of the Metal Gear hallmark. But I, I do feel like when you um when you see him like after when you're coming through it again, you know what's about to happen. I feel like you can kind of get creeped out, wondering how many of those ca- those weird camera shifts were just Mantis's perspective watching you. And that always makes me feel weird whenever I replay that game. Of like, like what is it? What else is he watching? He's just a, such a creep. And it, it's it's a little bit off putting. And they do a lot. They do a lot. Just the tone before that fight. Same same thing with the Gray Fox fight, where it just becomes a horror game for a few minutes again. And I I really appreciate that. It it really it's something the other games don't do as well. Like. No one is afraid of the fear from Metal Gear Solid 3. That's a fun fight, but you're not like unsettled before you fight him in the way you are, Mantis. Yeah. I'd say the closest thing is maybe Metal Gear Solid 5 with some of the Man on Fire and mm-hmm. Skullface stuff. Yeah, but some fire. of that is also, uh, they lean heavily on very extreme violence in some of those scenes. So that definitely helps. And so does this game, especially the Gray Fox hallway where everyone's bloodied and disemboweled. Uh, not too graphic because you're working with the Metal Gear Solid 1998 uh, aesthetic, so it's mostly just redness, but it is it is violent. It is horror, and I think that's, again, uh, Kojima's using the cinematics of the game because it's not just the camera pulls, which you mentioned are like kind of Psycho Mantis watching you from these weird angles because it's definitely different angles than a lot of the rest of the game, but also the way music and score plays in here because there's like a weird like chanting, humming score that happens here and then it totally cuts silent right before you go into the psychomantis arena so using sound and camera that's not really related to gameplay to help build mood again just something i hadn't really seen in video games and would be a while before it became commonplace now every game fashions itself as a movie but this was really a leap forward and i apologize if i sound like i'm just bowing at the you know feet of Kojimo or bowing at the feet of Metal Gear here, but uh, the Psycho Mantis battle, I could hype it up a lot, but uh, it is one of the most well-regarded video game boss battles, and it's all in part mostly because of what comes before it. We talked a little bit about entering the arena. We should talk about what actually happens when you enter the commander's office here. Uh, Meryl is possessed by Psycho Mantis, and he starts reading your mind, which in the mechanics of a video game is reading your memory card and it's really the first time i noticed metal gear going with the fourth wall breaks i can't remember the exact configuration but there's a lot of different variations of games you can have i think there's like five or six games it actually reads but depending on what you played of each one it has like different permutations of, of what he actually says which i think is very fun because there's a certain amount of konami games if you hit those he'll tell you like konami games but if you only have two of those He'll he'll just say Castlevania or he'll say whatever. It's um it was Azure Dreams is one of them. Sui Coden is one of them, right? Yes. Uh, isn't Vandal Hearts one of them? Oh man, I don't remember, but that's a great <laughs> that's a fun game to remember right now. But like I I think it's hard to get it's very difficult to get him to say Azure Dreams or Vandal Hearts if I remember correctly because they'll usually be just Konami games. It's it's a very it's like kind of complex like more than you would assume just by reading a memory card. 
yeah, I can't remember the exact the, the there's a there's like a chart. People have made charts about it, like what games you have to play for what amount of time to get what responses from him, which seems it seems like too much effort. But then again, it the fight is pretty early in the game. It's not that hard to get to. So yeah, I, I would say it's I wouldn't say it's like probably really early second act of the game. Uh, I think Metal Gear Solid One works where. Uh, most of the boss battles with the Foxhound unit really occurs in the second act of the game. Uh, especially, I think Mantis is maybe the starting of the turning point of the self-actualization for Solid Snake that we've talked about. Just in case you weren't familiar, when you enter the arena, uh, Psycho Mantis, all these bosses give you kind of a starting monologue and then a dying monologue. And he basically says he's going to read your mind and then he reads your memory card. But then the you know battle actually begins and then there's more play on this whole memory card and uh controller slot thing what happens is as you kind of run around the arena or try to shoot at mantis uh the screen will go completely black and the word hideo or hideo will show up in the corner now people who were maybe born after 1998 might not understand that reference or maybe they do i don't know how many people you know watch TVs traditionally like they used to, but you used to have a video input on your old box TV that would kind of usually be used for VCRs. Now a lot of that stuff is HDMI or you might have, you know, you might have something else, but for the most part, you're using your HDMI cables or maybe some kind of USB input, but nothing like uh, the video input. So the screen would go black uh, so it would look like, you know, if you changed your TV input from the TV station or the video game station to video game station, the video game input to a input that you don't have any device hooked up to, and it would prevent you from actually engaging with the boss. The video game station is G4 TV, as we all remember. <laughs> uh, that That is right. Uh, but so basically what you have to do is you have to what it, what's happening is that Mantis is controlling the controller one port of your PlayStation console, and you have to unplug your controller. This was a time, again, thinking about ancient technology here, where your controller had to be physically plugged into your console, and you had to switch uh, into the second player uh, controller port, and from there you could both uh, you could you know freely move around the arena, shoot at will, and overcome the boss. This is something that. I was kind of told and I, you know, word of mouth was allowed me to figure this out. Uh, what would happen is that eventually uh, Commander Campbell will call you and tell you, hey, Snake, try plugging it into the other port. Which is funny. It's always funny when you get those. For some reason, the way Campbell delivers those, like, press select is always more uncanny to me. It sounds like your dad telling it to you, like, <laughs> or like your principal. Are you winning, son? <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like your principal almost being like, you need to insert more quarters. for Insert five game tokens, son. It's like, eh, it's strange. And this is, I just want to point this out because we'll talk about it in future games as well. This is Kojima, again, not just engaging with the game through narrative and the storytelling, but he's taking a look at the entire PlayStation as a whole. He's already engaged the memory card slot. He's engaged your controller port, the Hideo input is almost engaging the actual box that you're playing this game on, you know, your television. The CD key. Yeah. The CD key happens before that too, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it happens right before that. It's kind of how you meet up with Meryl, and Meryl's kind of your lead in into this battle. So all that kind of fourth wall breaking stuff, 
is not just for, you know, shits and giggles like we mentioned before. This is where the game really starts engaging you, the player, in the battle. Or in the game, sorry. It's no longer characters just talking to Solid Snake. It's characters talking to you, the gamer. And that really kind of takes off after you kill uh, Psycho Mantis because you get your first hint of questioning where Psychomantis starts telling you that you enjoy the killing. Not in those words, but he says, you know, he reads your mind, knows all the people you killed, and he kind of starts... He says you're just like you're just like us. Yeah, you're the same as, as the rest of us. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he starts going into the monologue where he tells you his future, or he tells Snake his future, which is mostly what you're going to do next in the game, which is kind of a... You can think of it as either clever or a cheat, but it basically kind of lays out what the next maybe 20 minutes of puzzles or navigation are going to look like. Uh, but like you were saying, he starts telling Snake that he's like the unit of Foxhound, not like he's some opposition force. People like us have no past, have no future. And I love that he says the phrase, you're the same as the boss, which um, at the time, you would and still probably would interpret as referring to Liquid Snake, but with all the richer history we have from Metal Gear Solid 3 through especially 5, uh, he could theoretically be referring to Venom Snake, who is Big Boss, you know, because Big Boss said he was. So, you know, you can kind of start reading, going back to these older games, and they use the word boss so much, which is just a funny concept relative to video games anyways, that... You know, you can start reinterpreting what they actually mean when they say you're the same as the boss, because there's several characters that could fit that bill now. There's a there's another ver- example of that in a later fight that I'll mention too. I almost I don't think we wrote it down, but I'll I'll remember to mention here in a minute for sure. So th- we get into the character a little bit with uh, Psychomantis here. He tells us about how he's a master of psychokinesis and telepathy that. You know, his first person that he dove into the mind of was his father. It's, you know, a lot of stuff. And this is something that'll be common with all Metal Gear Solid bosses is they have a tendency to give you their life story when they're dying. Uh, This one a little bit. And then Metal Gear Solid 4 or someone will tell you their life story, I guess, in Metal Gear Solid 4. Yeah, that's it's worse in 4. I think it's worse in 4. It's more it's not as not as dynamic or interesting to me. My proposition to you is if we eventually monetize this podcast and start sell- selling t-shirts, we just make one that says it's worse than four and, you know, come up with some cute art for that. But yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Th- th- this and I would say definitely the first three games, all these boss monologues are engaging to me, maybe more so that I have, you know, come back to this game and this series so much, but I think they're all pretty well done and i think this game is perhaps maybe the best acted and the best written um and some of that is also possibly the best translated and localized but i really love uh most of these boss monologues and like i said uh we're going to kind of mention the uh, arenas that we fight all these bosses in i mentioned you fight psychomantis in the commander's office and I think the real thing here is commanders, you know, have control. And the whole idea with Psychomantis is being in control. Um, the fact that it's, it's kind of an odd setting. And I think it adds to that horror and creepiness that you alluded to that it's in just like an office with statue busts and paintings, paintings that come alive in the uh, twin snakes remake on GameCube. Yes. Which is cool. Yeah. I think that's a great flourish. And I think that totally fits the aesthetic of what's going on. 
And I did want to also just add right after Mantis dies and gives you his monologue. Uh, well, I I want to mention first that when Mantis takes his mask off or Snake takes Mantis's mask off, uh, Meryl just says, oh, gross, which it's just kind of funny to me that this guy is dying and these are his last moments on Earth. And one of the last things you're going to be told is how gross your face is. Uh, just always kind of tickled me in a fun way. Yeah, it's Meryl being inexperienced and not knowing, what, like just being on Guth kind of. Yeah, and I think that's actually worth mentioning here, too, because Solid Snake's demeanor here is because this is the first real major death in the game in terms of a boss fight or something like that. So Snake actually maybe kind of feeding into that soldier as a pitiable figure thing. He actually gives uh, Psycho Mantis a moment of grace. He like kneels next to him, listens to his story, removes his mask. It's, you know, these are little things. The guy's dying, dying at Solid Snake's hand. But it seems like a luxury afforded a a fellow combatant that maybe Solid Snake got from Big Boss or maybe it's just something Solid, you know, invented on his own. But it shows a certain maturity in having Meryl say that, oh, gross, kind of, you know, it does character work for both of the characters in a way by kind of highlighting the difference between the two. Yeah, and I would say that uh, it's also extremely different from how he reacts to Baker's death or uh, quote-unquote Anderson's death, where he's just like confused and shocked. Because he, you know, he's he's a warrior. He's not used to people just dying in front of him for no reason. If he's going to, if, if someone's going to die, it's because Snake kills him. I think is is generally what how his brain kind of comprehends the situation going on. And uh, yeah, it's it's a huge, it's a pretty marked difference from how he reacts to every other death at that point in the game, and then how he reacts to Mantis and Wolf and Raven. Not as much liquid. I don't think he has much time for liquid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, liquid just won't die. But I agree with you. I think. There's a certain simpatico between soldiers, foxhound soldiers, more or less. Uh, so, you know, I think there's something there. It's, you know, it's probably a mercy that's not afforded because, you know, most soldiers are probably just blown away without a chance to have their dying breaths and, you know, be able to recollect a few things. So, and kind of highlighting that difference between the two characters kind of leads into the next little segment after Mantis has passed. Uh, Snake and Meryl have a little chat. And Meryl's kind of like, how do you do it? Um, You know, I can't keep doing this. This is so horrific. And Snake kind of gives maybe the first hints of him being kind of an aspirational hero in a sense. He starts saying, never doubt yourself. Learn something from this. Make yourself stronger. And we get some of the more iconic lines from this game uh, because Meryl starts asking about, who are you, Snake? Like, do you have family? Do you have a name? And this is where you get, you know, a name means nothing on the battlefield. So we start learning about the loneliness of Solid Snake here, too, which probably goes hand in hand with his, you know, the soldier um, habits we were just talking about a second ago. Anything else you want to say on Mantis or should we move on? I like that um, it's kind of like a tell when Mantis controls Meryl and, and basically just begs Snake to have sex with her. It's just after she had told Snake that she'd had uh, gene therapy to make her not interested in the opposite sex so it's like a huge giveaway to the player and to snake that like something is wrong if you know if if the extremely creepy vibes and the floating uh gas mask man didn't already give that away yeah this is really where the weird i guess the weird kind of kicks off with gray fox and revolver ocelot but the weirdness definitely starts there's so much going on and i think the complexity of what's really going on is starting to really take off here 
Next up on our list is Vulcan Raven, voiced by Peter Lurie. Uh, he's an Inuit, and uh, I always remember Roy Campbell's description of him early in the game as giant and shaman. Vulcan Raven worked for the KGB prior to joining uh, Outer Heaven, which I had not known prior to doing research to this, that he was part of uh, Outer Heaven that Big Boss started that was the, you know, enemy fortress slash boss of the first Metal Gear game. He was not in the events of that first Metal Gear game on the MSX, but he was part of that unit. Uh, later, Vulcan would go on to join Foxhound, and uh, Raven is the one who will, after he dies, he's the one who kind of tells you about Decoy Octopus. So I just wanted to throw that in there. And Vulcan Raven is both goofy and awesome because, you know, you have conversations with him about the World Eskimo Olympics, and that's the term used in the game. I know we do not try to use that word. We use Inuit or indigenous, but they talk about the World Eskimo Olympics and Snake's like, you must be killer at the muktuk eating contest. And Vulcan Raven's like, Yes, I am, but I'm also really great at the year poll. And it's just really weird, but I love it. There's a playfulness between uh, Vulcan and the narrative and Vulcan and Snake that I really enjoy here. He's a very silly character in general. Just like a, like, I, I think it's, I've always thought it was kind of a, a little sly joke that he's physically the guy who's built up the most, and then you fight him in a tank. <laughs> like he, he's just like being a coward and hiding from you in a tank. He's he's literally a tank. And the second... So to set this up, you fight Vulcan Raven twice. You fight him very early in the game. I believe it precedes both the Ocelot and the Gray Fox fight. It's in a snowfield uh, between the first two facilities. And he is essentially the driver of a tank. And there's one soldier in there with him. And the tank basically drives around and you have to chuck grenades at him. But... Vulcan's a kind of a comically large man, so to kind of see him emerge from the small hole of the tank after you've defeated it, it's it's a really funny fight. I think it's supposed to be a little bit of foreshadowing, as uh, Kojima and his team had mentioned in interviews, that it kind of foreshadows the Metal Gear fight where you're one guy and you're underpowered against a giant machine, So yeah. and it's piloted by a Foxhound unit uh, member, so you see... Uh, kind of foreshadowing for the final boss fight and kind of what the you really are a one-man army fighting against you know thousands that are well armed and well equipped so it kind of shows you what the stakes are here and then we move on to the second battle which is follow it's actually the last uh, foxhound battle before you start getting to liquid snake but uh he literally is a tank is what i was trying to get to earlier because he's a giant man and then he has this giant gun on him uh there's a name for this and it's escaping me and i could say machine gun but there's a very specific thing it's a gun that's gatling gun a gatling gun that's it it's very specifically a gun that's really not meant to be wielded by a person it's supposed to be attached to a vehicle or a stationary weapon so again he's basically physically a tank with this equipment and uh before i forget i do want to tell people that there is a reference to this in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. In the highway battle, uh, one of the Hydra fighters has a rail gun, or sorry, Gatling gun, that Cap has to charge with the shield up to defeat. So again, another point towards that movie being influenced by Metal Gear Solid. But this boss battle, which is really the focus of this discussion, uh, is maybe one of the more dynamic in the games because you can basically use any weapon you want to defeat him. And this kind of applies to other 
bosses in this game but you you aren't really well equipped until you start fighting sniper wolf then you have your full cadre of rocket launcher sniper rifles so you're generally using your pistol or an assault rifle up until this point but uh the arena is laid out. It's a large arena uh, with various stacks of crates that can be blown up or shot apart. And you can use, you know, your Stinger missile to shoot him. You could use your Nikita remote control missile so you can guide it around corners. You can plant mines or use firearms. Uh, it's a pretty interactive environment and maybe not foreshadowing in a narrative sense, but it's kind of foreshadowing of the bigger boss battles Kojima would have in mind. And I'm starting to think about some of the ones in uh, Metal Gear Solid 3, but yes. it, it's definitely one of the, I think one of the more fun boss fights just because it's uniqueness and it's multiple ways you can do it. I always, it's what I saved Claymore, Claymore Mines for is that fight. Cause it's just easy. It's much easier. You can see him on the Solithon radar. So you can just put him on a corner when he comes around and then, Come, you come around the, from the other side after you get hit by it and just light him up with some small arms fire and then run away. It's it's honestly kind of easy, but it's easy in a way that is satisfying to me because it's easy if you make it easy. If you just like, straight up fight him, it's like you're you're gonna probably not win. So it's not like it's one of the easier boss fights in this game, but it's like I said, it, it's depending on how you approach it is how that is where the difficulty comes from, which I like. Yeah, uh, I was a stinger guy because uh, just my friend who I borrowed too. it from, he's, yeah. he said he used a stinger. And it's kind of fun because you need to, he's basically running across the screen and you basically have to time it up where he stops for a second and you have to hit him before he just starts blowing you away. So it's very live or die by the gun, which is, you know, just a fun way to do it. But I love the fact that you can do it all these ways. And honestly, I don't think I use the Claymore Mines anywhere else uh, really in this game. Uh, so it, it's kind of cool that you said you used it here. And when I come back to this at some point in the future, I'm going to try the Claymore mines. Cause I rarely use mines in these games. I, I don't think I ever use them. I use them a little bit in metal gear solid three, but, uh, th- near the end of metal gear solid three, you have like an escort puzzle where you have to carry Eva along. And the first map you're being trailed by Ocelot unit soldiers. And if I'm doing an, a lethal playthrough, kind of just leaving mines as I lead her across the field seemed to be a good way to keep them off my back. Yeah. But aside from that, I never used mines. So uh, good to hear that, you know, you also found a use for them elsewhere. So, um, and that's the boss battle, but let's talk about the character and themes because Vulcan Raven's really rich despite all the goofiness and on top of all these cool boss battles, because uh, he's kind of like your avatar of death for this game. Most of the games have it. And his is in a very kind of natural or mystical way because he speaks about the mark of death is on snake. And he mentions that snake has the blood of the East in him, which is something that will come up again in metal gear solid four. Uh, uh, snake had a surrogate japanese mother uh, that carried him to term so that's where that comes from uh but it's very much him talking about how he's going to watch snake from death um the very setting the arena it's a cold freeze storage but it very much feels like a morgue especially with all the ravens flying around and the raven is an animal that's very often associated with death a, a natural death and, you know, that's very much Raven's end is that his bones are picked apart um, in the end and they leave nothing there as Snake walks away with that badass don't look at the cool thing that's happening thing. His, his steroid infused Ravens that eat him in like 45 seconds. It's terrifying. 
yeah, uh, not quite a horror scene, but it's a horrific moment in the game. And that just further buoys Metal Gear Solid as the most horror adjacent of these games. And for, you know, this is not going to be the only time I do this on this episode, but I'm going to make Brian humor me because I want to read Vulcan Raven's last words because I think Peter Lurie gives a pretty good performance here. We'll see if you have the timber for it. I definitely don't. It sucks that I have to compete against a this voice cast but what Vulcan Raven says as Snake walks off into the distance is the path you walk on has no end each step you take is paved with the corpses of your enemies their souls will haunt you forever you shall have no peace hear me Snake my spirit will be watching you god that's awful I'm sorry I was doing it so much better in rehearsal I swear (laughs) Brian I swear Parts of this uh, little monologue or couple of lines here reminds me a lot of the sorrow battle that'll come up in Metal Gear Solid 3, uh, specifically talking about how each step you take is paved with the corpses of your enemies and their souls will haunt you forever. That is literally the sorrow battle as you wade through a river and every character you had killed in that game up to that point walks past you and tries to grab you. So I love that that was manifested. And the sorrow itself is probably... It is a spiritual battle and kind of plays on a lot of the same themes. And I kind of think about how when you kill the sorrow or he's already dead, but, you know, he kind of you get this voiceover. It's like uh, the warrior spirit lives within you. It feels like a very Vulcan Raven line to me as well. Mm-hmm. It's something that Vulcan's kind of saying to Snake at the end as well. So this is one of the cooler boss fights. And I definitely remember Vulcan Raven's death as one of the more memorable moments of this game, just because of all these themes and just the mood and the setting. It was just all clicking for me here. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Vulcan is the one who is explicitly referenced in the start of MGS two, even though I think I feel like he kind of has been over like overlapped by the subsequent games. Cause yeah, he was like a big, so it's like a big popular boss fight, and now it's like Psycho Man is the Sniper Wolf are the, are the bosses people think of from this game, I feel like. And then you have, obviously, the character of Ocelot would grow up to be huge, and then Liquid's just, you know, a big bad. So basically every member besides Decoy Octopus uh, foreshadow, or overshadows Vulcan in terms of the bosses, whether in character or the battle itself. But it is really fun. But uh, as we're going to move on to the next one... Uh, is my favorite battle, and that's uh, Sniper Wolf. And there are two battles here, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Sniper Wolf is voiced by Tazia Valenza. Uh, What we know about her history is that she was born in Kurdistan or modern-day Iraq. We'll get into that in a little bit. And she constantly lived under the threat of war growing up uh, during the second Kurdish-Iraq war. World never intervened to save her or her people, but Saladin did. And when she says Saladin, she means big boss. So she was among the many people we've come across in this game already, like Gray Fox and Vulcan Raven, who big boss was a savior figure to them. And you can see why they might be encouraged to follow the son of big boss or be part of a unit that claims that they're the sons of big boss. So there's definitely a tie there. And then what little else we know about her backstory is that uh, she would train under the Gurkhas of Nepal, who are famed marksmen. Um, they, I don't want to describe it, but it's 
if you saw a picture of a Gurkha, you would instantly recognize them. They come up in Crazy Rich Asians. Um, they're a very specific type of uh, South Asian soldier that people would be familiar with the aesthetic of. But let's dive into uh, the character of Sniper Wolf and some and the boss battles that come with her. The first time you meet her, uh, you she you and Meryl are walking down a long hallway, and then Meryl all of a sudden starts getting lit up by a sniper. No kill shots. These are all, you know, in the leg or, you know, in the waist, not near vital organs. But the idea is basically that Sniper Wolf is trying to draw Snake out. And there's actually one of the lesser regarded parts of this game is the fact that you kind of have to backtrack uh, through the maps that you've already come through to obtain a sniper rifle to get past this point. Yeah, it's not great. I think it's one of the things there. I, w- I would never justify it as actually being good, but this is where I can see them. They took up so much CD space with, uh, you know, voice acting, with the cinematics, with everything else going on in this game. And it probably just came down to the fact that how can we reuse some of the maps that we've already laid out uh, to, you know, kind of extend the game? Because without some of the backtracks, this game could probably be beaten in like three to four hours. And, you know, the backtrack's probably... Ant- it's better than the the other notable backtracking instance, but it's not great. Yeah. There, there's more to do on this backtrack because there are... There, it is possible that the first... You know, you go through that tank hanger the first time and you don't come back to it. There are some items to get that are useful for going forward. So you actually pick up a little more than just the sniper rifle. But yeah, this one is definitely better than the one later on in the game where you have to go back and change the key card because there's a lot of story happening because i feel like that's where a lot of the master miller and naomi stuff starts really taking precedence but it's a really annoying part of the game you just have to go backwards and hope you can make it back to the computer terminal before the card gets fucked up so it is what it is but you know that first battle once you get back there it is it's not very long or hard uh you do have to contend with the environment something that's you know very common to all these boss battles uh you're shooting sniper wolf is like on a second level of like the comms tower i believe and you're all the way at the back end of a long hallway and you have to shoot her and there's some pigeons there that if you're using like your night vision goggles um they will look like her you know because just warm blood i I'm going to sound really stupid here and say I assume birds have warm blood, but... Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really needed to know that I knew that. So, you know, you have the environmental factors in, but really this first battle is kind of sets up the Meryl thing, and then when you defeat her and then are able to actually walk down to the end of the hallway, uh, she's still alive. You're ambushed in the sense that a bunch of guards are there to uh, overpower you, and this kind of leads into the torture scene that we previously talked about a couple episodes ago with Ocelot and Liquid. So um, it's kind of a short-lived boss fight, and it's maybe perhaps more remembered for that backtracking. Yeah, it's it's almost like, I guess I don't really consider even a boss fight as much as it is a, it's an encounter. I think that's fair. Because I always consider boss fights to be like, they end with the boss dying or the boss leaving the game in some way. I, I guess by that, by that rationale the gray fox fight is not a boss fight either which i guess is not correct yeah i mean he when he does return because he basically disappears after you fight solid snake and he doesn't show up again until the metal gear fight so you could at least say that when he does return he's basically different in a significant way he's no longer fighting snake but helping him and you know telling him to live his life in a certain way but 
Uh, I agree with you. I wouldn't say this is a boss fight. Uh, I just want to uh, include that this is where you encounter her. Kind of like you said, I would say the Vulcan Raven tank fight is basically the same thing where it's not really a boss fight um, in the traditional sense, even though you do take out the tank per se. Let's get to the second battle because up until the release of Metal Gear Solid 3, this was my favorite boss battle because you... This is the first sniper battle I can really ever remember in a video game, at least a console game. And this is a giant uh, sniper open snow field um, at the foot of the comms tower at Shadow Moses. And basically you're on one end of the field and she's on the other end. It's a very simple, you know, sniper battle. The The series will have more evolved ones later on. But you basically, you know, she's running and ducking and hiding behind trees. You have to lay on the ground because that's the best way to study your aim. Uh, but even so, your arm is shaking and you have to take pentazamine, which is a, I think I'm saying that right, or pentazamine. Yeah. Yeah. So what he said, uh, you have to take uh, pentazamine to uh, sh- calm your shaky trigger hand so you can be steady enough to take that shot against her. Which is a perfect, like, Metal Gear weird detail thing. Something you wouldn't think of. That still, it just works perfectly in the context of the game. Yeah. And this is maybe, I guess the Stinger and the Nikita kind of break this, but it's the real only like gun that you go into first person for. So that few moments where you actually are going into first person to shoot a gun, uh, to have that shaky trigger finger, it feels like a level of realism that, you know, again, I don't remember shaky hands in video games prior to this game. And even some games now, they just completely bypass that when it comes to shooting. I think Red Dead Redemption 2 was a game I played recently and really loved, but I'm pretty sure you can point that, uh, you know, aimer thing wherever and it pretty much stays there. I think the first Hitman game had shaky hands, but that came out about a year and a half after Metal Gear, so it doesn't count. And uh, again, speaking to the arena that you fight her in, we mentioned that it's an open snowfield, but I would say of all the bosses... Uh, Sniper Wolf is most connected to nature in a more natural sense, whereas we talked about Vulcan Raven in a more mystic sense. Uh, and that's, you know, goes along with her relationships with wolves. You have this giant battle underneath the stars. And in the end, uh, she's not like carried away or anything, but it feels like the wolves that were her friends would take care of her, almost give her a proper burial. They do it to her analog in Metal Gear Solid 4, which again, it's worse than 4, but like the wolf takes off crying wolf in that game from this same exact snowfield. But I do like, again, that the arena is again informing the character because uh, Sniper Wolf is very much tied to nature in this game. Yeah, I was going to say that I like we're going to get into her actual death here. I like it so much that it's it's a perfect sort of... What's the opposite of a retcon? It's sort of del- like unintentionally... Because I don't think when they made Metal Gear Solid 1, they had the idea that they would, make a, they would be making big boss games where he was literally the same character. But I love that she confuses... Once, she's, once Snake starts giving her a speech, and like once he starts actually talking to her and, and, and like empathizing with her, she confuses him for big boss, which I love. She thinks he's Saladin. Yeah. And this this is one of the things that I've loved of going back to Metal Gear Solid and doing this research and watching the videos on YouTube again is now that we know so much about Big Boss, th- his shadow hangs over this game so much. He is almost like Shadow Moses in a way. Uh, you know, he is Moses and his shadow is on this game. Sorry, it's a bad analogy, but... Oh, Shadow Moses, Outer Heaven. Oh, very nice. 
I didn't even think of that. So it's definitely great that you can come back to this game and be like, oh, all this Big Boss stuff just feels so much richer now that we got Big Boss. And like you said, I don't think they envisioned this game because Kojima famously after every Metal Gear game says, this is going to be the last Metal Gear. I think the only game he did not say that after was Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain, Phantom Pain, which ended up being the last Metal Gear. So uh, that's a joke for another day, but I definitely agree with you. And the fact that, you know, she confuses him like straight up physically for Big Boss uh, will hint to the fact that, you know, when we meet him in Metal Gear Solid 3, he looks exactly the same. Now... This is, again, where I'm going to have to annoy Brian and do some um, voice acting of my own. Because I really love the last exchange between Sniper Wolf and Snake. I don't think you can do the wolf voice. Yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to do it anyways, so shut up. Uh, But I'm mostly going to read it because I think it uh, feeds into what Snake actually says. And I'll try to do a better Snake here. But uh, so... Going as Wolf now, she starts telling about her life. You know, she was a sniper and she says, I became a sniper, hidden, watching everything through a rifle scope. Now I could see war, not from the inside, but from the outside. As an observer, I watched the brutality, the stupidity of mankind through the scope of my rifle. I joined this group of revolutionaries to take my revenge on the world. But I have shamed myself and my people. I am no longer the wolf I was born to be. In the name of vengeance, I sold my body and my soul. Now, I am nothing more than a dog. To which Snake responds, Wolves are noble animals. They're not like dogs. In Yupik, the word for wolf is kegrunek, and the Aluits revere them as honorable cousins. They call mercenaries like us dogs of war. It's true. We're all for sale at some price or another. But you're different. Untamed solitary you're no dog you're a wolf and i have to say that the score is absolutely kicking ass right here in the game it's a very simple keyboard melody but man it's just hitting the perfect tone and i love this this would honestly be the first time i said i got really emotional in a video game maybe a little bit in ff6 with some of the you know world of ruin stuff but without like the whole presentation the score the voice acting it didn't quite hit in the same way um as this does for me i think otacon is what does it what makes it hit because he just shows up which is great the idea that like it's almost like the first time i played it i remember thinking i wonder if otacon is here and he just shows up like five seconds later i was like oh great perfect timing in stealth camo, no less. So it's very possible that he was watching or not very far the entire time. But as we mentioned in the Otacon discussion in the previous episode, that he and Sniper Wolf had some kind of relationship. It comes off as unrequited from what we see here. But given Otacon's history with women, I would say there, there might be something there. But this is a really real turning point for him as well, because... You know, he was kind of just like taken aback by being realizing that the work he was doing was for the purposes of uh, a nuclear walking tank. So this is kind of just like Snake right here is kind of having a reinvented sense of purpose. Uh, I think Otacon has that moment right here as well. I also think this is I think this is officially where they become friends, where at least where Snake officially, I think he doesn't, th- he doesn't take Otacon as a joke anymore once he decides to help. 
he tells him to run away. He tells him to leave, that he still has time to escape, and Otacon refuses and says he's going to help. He's going to stay and see, see it all through. And I think Snake, I think he's impressed by that, and I think he it, that's where he sort of starts to view Otacon as like an ally and not just some some dork. Yeah, I see this as a moment where both of them kind of build each other up uh, to, you know, so that they can each continue on this mission. Because um, after giving Wolf her beautiful eulogy, Snake kind of feels, you know, reinvigorated. He's like, I got a job to do. I'm going to fucking do it. And then Otacon's like, no, you know, I'm going to help you. I'm not leaving. I'm not escaping. I have to pay for my sins as well. So I really love that they kind of reinforce each other. And then they have that iconic exchange that we threw at the end of last episode where, you know, what are we fighting for? And Snake basically says, you know, if we make it through this, I'll tell you. I am not going to give a dramatic reading of that line. I think I've debased myself on this episode. But uh, I did want to mention before we move on from Sniper Wolf that we also I mentioned the score, but we also get a little prelude of the best is yet to come, which will be the song that ends this game and if you've been listening to the end of these podcasts the song that we end our podcast on a song that's beautiful it's written in gaelic it honestly might be my favorite song metal gear or otherwise so we've come to it at last the final member and the leader of foxhound liquid snake iconically voiced by cam clark Uh, last week when we discussed solid snake we talked about the origins of his name Liquid was given his name to basically be treated as the opposite but same as our protagonist, putting him on a level playing field and being inherently menacing to Solid Snake. Uh, these these are the paraphrased words of Kojima himself from a 2014 Twitter interaction that I also cited last week. It's Snake to surpass the snake is what Kojima would follow up on. And that's interesting phrasing to me just because that's basically how all the games from here go on. It's it's some form of kind of snake versus snake, a snake yeah. eating a snake, uh, a fake snake eating or a fake snake fighting a fake boss or a fake snake fighting a fake snake. There's all sorts of plays on this, but it's always a snake to surpass the snake. <laughs> and it also recalls a very iconic Metal Gear line, uh, a weapon to surpass Metal Gear. Yeah, that, that's what I was just laughing at. I want to I want to say real quickly it's um I don't it's it's the it's another I think it may be another mild example of Metal Gear's uh, influence is that the Yakuza games always end up doing that too because Kiryu is the dragon of Dojima and it seems like every other game there's either a dragon another dragon to take him out or somebody wants to take out all the dragons and says there's not supposed to be any more dragons and it, there's it's always the, the main Either the main antagonist or one of the main antagonists of all those games will always have some personal beef with Kojima, with Kiryu, <laughs> because he's the dragon of Dojima. That's what I was getting at, and uh, he has this huge dragon tattoo. His best friend in the in the in Yakuza Zero and the villain of the first game has a uh, has a, a Nishiki tattoo, which is in Japanese lore the the koi, uh, the koi can go up the waterfall to become the dragon. So it's like his friend with the inferiority complex is mad at him for that. That's a thing that they do. All those games do, and I feel like may be, if not directly influenced by Metal Gear, it's definitely the same vein of storytelling. Uh, just like this weird animal symbolism that there always has to exist in the in universe. I, I I enjoy that personally. That's one of my favorite metal aspects of Metal Gear is that there's always snakes and bosses, and uh, there's only two Sith. You know all that shit. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, fighting like having the same kind of 
whether narrative or mechanical battle like you know in mario you're always fighting bowser or in zelda you're always fighting ganon at the end and not always there are definitely exceptions that we both could cite what always yeah i i don't want to say always you, oh, are you gonna spoil breath of the wild for me oh no oh no <laughs> uh um, <laughs> I, I had a friend who asked me what the game the end of that game was and i was just like uh you beat ganon <laughs> Yeah, that's literally almost every game except what, like Link's Awakening, Majora's Mask. I think there isn't a Ganon in Adventures of Link. There's plenty non-Ganon, but you know, there's tropes of the series. So what I like about Metal Gear and probably what's going on with uh, Yakuza as well is the fact that it's not that you're just fighting kind of the same big bad in the end, but the story's actively engaging in the fact that these are the tropes of this video game, but we're making story out of it and we're saying something with that story. Uh, something we'll definitely get into a lot with Metal Gear Solid 3 because that's almost the idea Snake Eater is literally that. So we should mention that Liquid's uh, actual name is Eli. I don't really have any more explanation like I did last week, but it is Eli. We know that for sure from Metal Gear Solid 5. And in terms of the parlance of the game, Solid Snake is called Snake, and then Liquid Snake is called Liquid. Probably to avoid confusion, I have no idea what they did outside of the events of this game. Liquid is the physical doppelganger of Solid Snake. They look exactly alike to the point that Meryl thinks that Solid is Liquid early on in the game. There are very slight differences in skin tone. Uh, Liquid is slightly darker, and his hair is fairer to the point of blonde. I would say that in the original game, that does not come... Like, it's kind of hard to tell that. There's just no... Like, if you put a mustache on one of them, they'd probably look like Ocelot at that point. It's it's kind of the same face for everybody. Everyone has the same two-pixel face. But, yeah, Twin Snakes, it, it works better. Like they do, they do look like the same person, just wearing different costumes. Yeah, I think... This isn't something we've really mentioned at all, but Metal Gear Solid on top of the gameplay has other things you can do. They have VR missions, which are just short little challenges. And then they have briefings that are kind of just additional information that you can take in at any point or up front. They're very short. Well, not sh- they're short for Metal Gear, but you know, they're probably <laughs> long for anything else. But in some of that, they show Solid Snake in a different art form than the game renders him. And it's not the Shinkawa art style that is popularly known and I've been posting on our social media. It's a rendering of him that's kind of more lifelike or more similar to a life, you know, depiction. And you can kind of see when Snake, you can kind of see the similarity between Solid or Liquid because they're showing you Solid Snake. And it's like, oh, that's kind of how I pictured Liquid looks like mm-hmm. because he has blonder hair. You mentioned that he dyes his hair for the for this game. So um, again, like Ocelot and Mantis, there's some Liquid Snake backstory that's better saved for future game discussions. Again, mostly the Phantom Pain. But coming into Shadow Moses, what we can tell you is he was born of the Les Enfants Tariq project, just like his brother. They're clones of the legendary soldier Big Boss. They were born of the super baby method, uh, which means that there were eight babies originally conceived, and they specifically killed six off, so a better chance for the remaining two to live on. I only mention this because genetics are very core to the themes that Liquid Snake presents you with. Uh, Liquid initially grew up in England. He would eventually be lost in Africa. Those are the events of Metal Gear Solid V, where we see him as a child soldier, and even as kind of a Lord of the Flies type ringleader for the child soldiers. He would eventually return to England, and he would fight for British forces in the Gulf War, including the 
the Air Force, as well as the secret intelligence services. He would be taken captive by Iraqis during this uh, conflict, and he would be freed by Americans. As mentioned earlier, he joined Foxhound in 2000 and became the leader. And he assumed the leadership of Foxhound already with a grudge against Solid Snake because Liquid also hates Big Boss. And that, again, we'll go over more in Metal Gear Solid 5. But he views Solid Snake as someone who denied him the revenge, the revenge that was rightfully his. And I guess we should talk about Big Boss, Liquid, Snake together because genetics, like we mentioned, are a core part of their theme. The legacy of Big Boss is very important to Liquid's goals because he hates Big Boss, but then he's kind of trying to recreate what Big Boss wanted to do. He wants to create his own outer heaven backed by his own Metal Gear in a way. He's basically carrying on the meme of Big Boss, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, as well as well as he's carrying on the genes of Big Boss like him and Solid are. I have to say that I really, I like, I don't think it was deliberate, but the dominant recessive stuff, A, I mean, at this point, we kind of know that that's not, dominant recessive genes do exist, but they don't work in that way. I think that may have even been something we knew in 98. But I like it as like a, it's, it's something that sticks in like as a character motivator. It, it he just hates it. He he's so upset by it, and it makes him mad. It's like it's such a little strange thing to be motivated by, but it makes him almost psychopathically angry the entire game. And I love that. I love that it's it's like his berserk button. Yeah. So what Brian's talking about here is that when uh, Liquid and Solid were conceived as clones, they intentionally gave Solid all the dominant genes and they gave liquid all the recessive genes which may explain the slight differences in their you know pers- not per- complexion is the word i'm looking for well no they they i think i think somebody says that liquid got the dominant genes and they told him oh he got right the recessive right genes yeah yes so w- at this point when you're uh confronting liquid liquid says that solid got all the dominant and then uh Liquid believes he got all the recessive. And then in the post-credits, a uh, phone call between Ocelot and the president, who's the third son of Big Boss, Solidus Snake. Uh, Ocelot says that Liquid was the one who got all the dominant genes. This wasn't brought up ever again. I take Ocelot's word to be true, but doing some research for this podcast, it seems like people just say it's conflicting messages and, you know, it never came up again, which is fine. Like you said, the science doesn't really bear out that, you know, dominant genes are better than recessive genes in terms of who you are as a person. But there was a tweet a little while ago from a pretty bad lefty where he said, I'm always willing to take the conceit of a game or a story if they tell it to me. Like the movie Lucy, where, you know, it's kind of based on the myth that we only use 10% of our brains. What if we could use 80, 90, 100% of our brains? And that makes the main character super powered or overpowered, whatever. I haven't actually seen the movie, but I'm willing to take what a story tells me is like, this is one of the rules. Limitless brain pills. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's thinking of that too. That's kind of that same trope. Yeah, no, I, I know, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. So, um, a- another reason that we kind of know that Liquid is a shit heel is that we know that he's read some Richard Dawkins, <laughs> and I kid because Richard Dawkins has made some significant, uh, what's it called, additions to what we know about genes, what we know about. He basically pioneered the concept of memes. Uh, that basically dominates all our lives and is what I live for at this point. But, you know, he kind of laid down the foundation for talking about that as a concept. 
And we'll talk about more with memes, uh, especially with Metal Gear Solid 2. And Revengeance. Oh, and Revengeance. Well, okay. There's 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 a there's a uh there's a specific reaction image from Revengeance of a boss character saying I, I remember the exact word, but he's like, I li- I live for this meme. And it's <laughs> Oh. I think great. I've seen that clip now that you say that. Yes, yes, it's great. And uh, everything, everyone kind of knows what a meme is, mostly because of the internet, but a meme really is an idea that gets passed down from generation, not just a shit post, you know, combining two different Simpsons uh, screenshots. So, But uh, he also talks a lot about genes here. He mentions the selfish gene and gene theory, and it's kind of explaining how behavior, human behavior, human society is influenced by, you know, evolutionary and genetic uh, theory, things like, you know, we help and protect our family, even though we don't breed with our families, but we still do it because we understand that if we have a unit of community and we take care of each other, that increases the chances that we can pass down our genes into the future. Um, this game, a lot of what uh, Kojima was trying to go with thematically is about genes and what we pass on to future generations. And we'll get more into that next week because we have a whole episode dedicated to theme. But it is really, Liquid is telling you all this stuff uh, very much. And it, it really highlights that this is kind of the organizing principle of this game. Yeah. And yeah, the meme stuff, the concept is more complicated than that, but it's it's not something to talk about for, for this game. Yeah. because. Genetics are, are the thing with this. I mean, even the genome soldiers, that's where that comes from. Correct. Even I always felt technically, like, in, in, a, in a kind of way, uh, Campbell and Merrill are, are kind of tied into that because they are, in, I mean, even if even if you don't believe that that, uh, Campbell, that Roy, Campbell is your father, which I, I think you're supposed to by the end of the series, but, like, that's still still related. They're still, he, he definitely sees her as his legacy more than I think he does Snake. Because I think he, this is getting more in his camp character. I don't think he, I don't think he wants there to be a snake. I don't, I don't, I don't think he wants that to exist anymore. I think is what I'm getting at, which is an interesting, like at least from this game and from four. Not you know two doesn't count. Two's not. It's not him. No, it's not Campbell. <laughs> yeah, and I agree with you. I I think he respects and loves Solid Snake, but that's not the future he wants for Meryl. I think he's seen both sides. He's seen Big Boss. He's seen solid snake uh, neither of them are you know something you aspire to be or something you want your daughter to be so um i definitely agree with you that genetics are definitely the, the per you know kind of the focus of this game and and naomi and and gray fox yeah uh, the whole concept of sins of the father um we talk about that as more of like a metaphysical or metaphorical sense but you know the gene the genetic uh, the genetic themes of this game all just feed into that as well because we're all trying to overcome you know the burdens that our father placed on us and with liquid and solid it's the legacy of big boss um that we've talked a little bit about already and we'll talk about more as we go on but on top of uh the genetics you also get a lot from liquid about the killing that you've done on this like there is a point that we've talked about probably on each podcast so far where you are put in the eyes of Solid Snake, so Liquid's looking directly at you, and he tells you, you enjoy all the killing. Um, he basically is calling the player out for being violent, for wanting to engage in the violent power fantasy that is this game and that is video games in general. And then he starts going off about how we were created to be this way. And this is, you know, feeding into the culture at this time, because, you know, we talked last time about how 
you know, people are being funneled into this military industrial complex through things like STEM. We find video games being kind of a soft launching pad for people to be like, oh, I love running around and shooting guns. What if I did this in real life? We definitely saw an explosion. I think the NRA really emerged as a significant political entity really around this time. It was always there and it always had pull, but it became like a third rail in terms of right-wing politics that you have to be you know, basically subservient to the NRA. And that's basically so you can get all the money that they're willing to give you. So, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I, I was also going to say that I think I, I always like to let that liquid line because they, he and solid snake were literally created to be this way by the people who made the game, which is like another level of actual metatextual analysis that the game to that, that's, that's what two is. And we're going to go in circles with that game, but like, I always appreciate that. Nier Automata does a lot of that. That's a thing I really enjoy. But it's it's one thing to be metatextual to, to with like your genre or like the tropes of your genre. There's another one to like literally confront to have the game the characters in the game literally confront the people who created the game. I think that's really interesting. And I, I wish game I wish more games did it. it. Still doesn't happen enough. Stanley Parable does it. That's about it. As far as any other games that aren't action games. And that's, again, it's of a kind with some of the stuff we talked about with uh, Psycho Mantis, that it's not just engaging with the narrative, but it's engaging with the console, with the Mantis game and the memory card. But here it's actually engaging with the creative process of making this game. And like you I I couldn't even say it better than what you just did. Uh, He's basically saying, we created this game so you could run around and kill people. And, you know, you don't have to kill a ton of people in this game. There are... You ha- you definitely have to kill at least probably twenty people between all those uh, skirmishes and then the boss fights. But you know you can kind of go not killing everyone, and then in subsequent games you'll actually be able to complete entire games without you yourself giving like a kill shot. There will be people who die because of what you've done. We'll get into that because it gets a little messier in two and three, but. It very much is challenging the player and it's even challenging themselves by saying that we created this game for you to kill people and now we're kind of scolding you for it. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of conflicting thoughts, but conflicting in a good way. It's supposed to be a lot and it's supposed to be somewhat dissonant in your head and it should be kind of upsetting in a way. And then uh, the last thing I want to mention here before we get into the battle is that we mentioned during the Psychomantis battle that, you know, Meryl asks, hey, do you have a name, Snake? And he's like, a name means nothing on the battlefield. <laughs> but now Li- Liquid, because uh, Liquid's doing this whole monologue and uh, Meryl's kind of tied up in the corner while he's doing it. Uh, if you submit it to the torture, she's dead. If you did not, she's living. But Liquid's saying, Meryl fell in love with you. She fell in love with a man that has no name. And Snake says, I have a name. Like, th- this is the first time in this game that he's actually acknowledging that, hey, there is a person underneath. And I think that's not the end of his arc, but it's kind of a punctuation point that like all the stuff that went through prior to this game or prior to this moment in the game, you know, is Solid Snake becoming the person that he's meant to be for the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. Someone more than just the soldier and the indifferent soldier. But all that aside, we have a whole lot to talk about with themes. So let's save that for next time. Let's get into a couple of the boss fights that you have with Liquid Snake. I would say there's, three actual boss fights in here the fourth is just kind of a tack on action set piece yeah um you fir- you first fight uh liquid in a hindi a helicopter a helicopter that we'd find out was named by big boss in metal gear solid 3 
Forget all that. Behind D. <laughs> That's pro- perhaps the most iconic of the questions. My my, it's my favorite question. Aside from second floor basement, because he says it so like it's like he's mad about it. Like what? <laughs> that one, and then of course my favorite question in any in in this game in general that doesn't come from Snake is is the uh, whose footprints are these? Guard. You can get him to say it like a hundred <laughs> times, and I always do. Whose footprints are these? Oh, whose yeah. footprints are these? That's that's sort of where the, a lot of the fun of the Hitman games comes because you can just like throw things out and distract a guard, and they'll all just be like, "What's this?" And go grab it. They can do it over and over again. That's one of the real ways those games play similarly, and I I really enjoy it. Oh yeah, it's so much fun. Tangent, sorry. Yeah, no, I think it's worth talking about. I think Metal Gear Solid Five really expands on the different ways you can because you can do decoys a big boss, <laughs> and there are a lot of fun ways. It's very much a sandbox for fucking with guards, but. Uh, returning to the Hind D fight, don't need to talk about this one that much, but it is a giant set piece in this game because uh, there's two basically twin comm towers on the Shadow Moses Island. You climb up to the top of one. You're ambushed by Liquid in this helicopter. This is kind of your first real face-to-face encounter with him. And he kind of says, I'm you, I'm your shadow, I'm your brother. This is kind of where you get that first uh, not hint of that. Yeah, And you don't have... You don't have any weapons to actually take on a helicopter at this point. So you have to rappel down the side. You had picked up rope earlier and you rappel down the side of the building. And it, it, it's kind of a fun, but it's kind of a goofy and a mechanically weak part of the game because the rappelling mechanics aren't something you ever revisit. And there are points where you just kind of have to take damage again, like from the exhaust pipes. Like there isn't a real great way to navigate down. And as you're kind of rappelling down this building, I mentioned there's some, you know, hot gas bursts that can take away your life. And then the hind D that liquid is uh, commanding is kind of strafing the screen and showering you with bullets. But it is a big set piece. You get down to the bottom of one tower. You're able to pick up a, stinger missiles you fight to the top of the next tower and then you have a a battle proper with him where you're you go and you use the stinger you go into first person mode it's one of the few guns like we mentioned that actually has that and you you know basically target him and take him out um there's some fun stuff in the battle but nothing super important uh he takes out the helicopter he says see you in hell liquid and he also drops uh that'll take care of the cremation punchline yeah the one weird bond line he has (laughs) yeah it's it it really feels out of place uh but it's also kind of fun in the same way and i did want to also mention that repelling scene earlier did give me major diehard vibes we've mentioned is a major influence on this game it's very similar to john mcclain jumping off the top of the nakatomi building uh tied to the fire hose which is great but uh, he would die he'd be extremely dead if he did that Oh yeah! Like of all the things in that movie, that's the one where like he, he you're dead. There's no surviving that. But whatever, that's a minor thing. I'm pretty sure his body would like his spine would snap in half when that hose actually runs out of uh, slack when he first hits. But either which way, I will debate the mechanics of Die Hard later. The major fight with Liquid, or at least maybe the most. I'll just say a major fight with Liquid is the Metal Gear Rex fight itself. Like we mentioned. Almost every Metal Gear has a major fight where you are a snake and you fight a giant Metal Gear, uh, some kind of mechanical robot. Uh, In this game, Liquid is piloting the Metal Gear from essentially its mouth as kind of the 
the jaws of the machine open up and that's where the pilot seat is. It's a giant arena and the me- uh, the Metal Gear itself is a giant space consumer within that arena. You have minimal cover. And again, you're going into first person mode to uh, take out the radome, which will theoretically open up the jaws so you can shoot at liquid. Yeah, it's great. It's um mentioning that point about how every Metal Gear game has you fighting a Metal Gear. Uh, again, not to, not to again push Revengeance. You do that in like ten minutes into the game, Revengeance. <laughs> like, it's like a, it's like deliberately a joke to where you fight a, you fight like a superpowered Metal Gear Ray within ten minutes of the game starting up. It's just sort of like a tone setter. The Metal Gear's fight to me in this one, though the Rex fight, it's just not that fun on replays. Like it's just tedious. I think it's because you have to do it twice. Basically, you have to get the radium open, and then you have to shoot Liquid himself, and it just takes so long. And it, 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 it feels like you're just doing it to get to the Gray Fox scene. And it's like, I just want to see the Gray Fox scene. I don't really care about this fight. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's the weakest. I think it's the weakest of all of them, pretty much. Even the Peace Walker ones are like weirder. I totally agree with you. I think it's the weakest mechanically, at least in the sense that it feels like every boss fight up until this introduced something really new to the boss fight, whether it's, oh, this is a sniper battle, or you could do a million things against Vulcan Raven or just the weirdness of Psychomantis. But this one, you're using your Stinger. That's the only real weapon that will work, which is a weapon you've already used against the Hind D, which we mentioned earlier. And, you know, I used it against Vulcan Raven. So it's not like there was anything happening in this battle that wasn't executed already in a previous battle. But you did mention the Gray Fox stuff, which I do want to highlight. And we kind of talked about this in various recaps and in our analysis of Gray Fox last week is that uh, Gray Fox comes in. You, you've been shooting this radome thinking that'll allow you to have a shot at liquid, but you take out the radome and everything's still pretty much impenetrable. Gray Fox shows up. I think he throws his sword at the radome. Um, and then he gives Snake a long spiel. Somehow they're like talking and Metal Gear is kind of like bumbling around in the background for a while. Um, but then he, um, you know, goes on, he shoots and takes on Metal Gear head on basically. And at a certain point, uh, Metal Gear Rex pins Gray Fox to the wall. And uh, this allows like, or the jaws of Metal Gear Rex opens and, you know, you have a shot at Liquid, but if you take the shot with the Stinger, you will take out gray fox it's kind of a fun moment it's it goes so you are in the middle of a cutscene. it cuts back to you in the playable stinger point of view and you can aim and try to shoot at gray fox and liquid but every time you press the trigger button on the playstation one remote uh snake would say something like i can't do it i can't do it there might be another line he throws in there but basically i think it's just that one Okay, so uh, basically the game is preventing you from shooting Gray Fox while, uh, you know, Liquid is exposed. It's kind of something they, it's almost the inverse of what happens at the end of Metal Gear Solid 3 when you have to take a shot at the end of the game to kill your friend. In this one, it won't let you take the shot. That would end the game, theoretically, it would take down Metal Gear and Liquid is the hope, but it would also kill your friend. Yes, yes, Uh, at the end of Metal Gear Solid 3, when Snake has to kill, quote, his friend. We'll, we'll just call him his friend. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the way to, to describe that relationship. But we talked about Fox's sacrifice a lot last week, but there's just some really great iconic lines here. The whole, you know, uh, we're not tools of the government or anyone else. We, fighting was the only thing I've ever been good at, but at least I've always fought what I believed in. 
Again, not my best dramatic reading, but there's a lot of great, great Fox stuff here. Again, it feels weird that you and Snake basically have an aside while Metal Gear's like doing weird stuff in the background because Liquid's all disorientated, to, uh, so to speak. But all that aside, did you have anything you wanted to add about the Metal Gear Rex fight or should we move on to the... No, not really. I guess I guess I always interpret it as uh, Liquid can't figure out how to open the canopy. <laughs> he, like he doesn't know what he... Because who who... How many people in the world would have experienced piloting Metal Gears at that point that aren't Colonel Vulgan, who's who is dead? Yeah, like I always like that. I always like that he just kind of like Liquid will talk shit for so long, and then he like doesn't know how to actually pilot the thing he's trying to use. That's how I, that's how my brain always rationalized it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so we move on to uh, the hand-to-hand fight. So you blow up Metal Gear, uh, but kind of Snake and Liquid are both kind of, you know, knocked out in the process when Snake comes to Liquid's marching on him. And then he kind of ties him up and I guess he takes him up to the top of Metal Gear. And we get all the monologue, the discussion of themes that we've alluded to. And then you kind of have a hand-to-hand brawl with uh, Liquid with mechanics that are not you know, that have not been in play at all during the game, but it doesn't really bother me. It is a very small area that you're allowed to work on, and you basically have a block and a punch uh, mechanic. They recreated in Metal Gear Solid 4, but there's not much to talk about the hand-to-hand fight itself, uh, other than the fact that it's basically two naked snakes fighting each other. You're both topless here, and I just love the concept of naked snakes after that's Big Boss's codename in Snake Eater. Yeah. It's also it also to bring another Yakuza comparison here because I'm playing Yakuza three right now. Good game. It's the those games always almost always end with Kiryu fight with his shirt off fighting someone else with their shirt off. Like that's th- there's a lot of like the same sort of very Japanese concepts of uh, of masculinity show up in these games. Similarly, I think I think that's that's really what that is. That's like the manliest thing you can imagine is two dudes without shirt, just dudes rocking. Yeah, you know, dudes rock. Guys being dudes was better than that. Snakes rock. I, yeah, I'm a fan of that, but <laughs> it's th- there isn't much to talk about here. Like most of the meat of it is in the themes we talked about already, and then you know that we'll talk about next week. But you know, it's kind of a brawler to end the game. It, the scene ends with you knocking Liquid off of Metal Gear, which is theoretically like 20 or 30 feet tall. So it should be a fall that would kill someone normally. Well, they he says before it that it will kill you if you fall off. Yeah, it will kill Solid Snake. Yeah. Well, because he doesn't have the dominant genes. Oh, I just figured it out. (laughs) I have the dominant falling down and surviving gene. But so uh, the battle ends with you knocking Liquid off. And then uh, during all this, there was all that whole plot stuff about they're going to nuke the facility. You have to get out of here. Uh, All that Houseman stuff that neither of us are a fan of. Not going to bother with it. So basically, uh, you get in a Jeep. Uh, I believe Meryl's driving if she's alive, which, again, she never was for either of us. So uh, for me, it was always Otacon driving. But basically, uh, you get in a Jeep and Otacon's driving you out of the Shadow Moses base, out of this long tunnel. And it actually kind of reminds me of the scene from the first Avengers movie. I ke- Sorry to keep bringing these movies up. I, I mean, it's a similar kind of. It's it's similar kind of like government facility. I think that's just an aesthetic. Yeah, it, I think I do think it's. I just was thinking about this. It's interesting that if you're not good at the game, you become gay. Oh wow. <laughs> oh wow. If you're not good enough at the game, you 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 can't be hetero anymore. You have to be gay with Otacon. Damn. Well, then I want to lose. Uh, <laughs> so, 
But so you're in this Jeep and then as you're driving off, there are other Shadow Moses guards like getting in Jeeps and trying to shoot you down. But eventually Liquid rolls up somehow still alive after surviving the Hind D battle, the Metal Gear Rex battle, fighting you and then falling off Metal Gear itself. He's still alive and he has that iconic line. That's the name of this episode. It's not over yet, Snake. And he's... You know, he's behind one turret on a Jeep. You're behind another turret on a Jeep and you're basically just shooting each other. I believe it's a Jeep or are you just using your FAMAS assault rifle? I can't actually remember. Uh, I think it's a Jeep, isn't it? It has to be because you lost all your equipment because you yeah, were Yeah, it's a Jeep. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it really matters, but no, it's yeah, just two dudes on Jeeps. So just dudes by rocking Jeep. on Jeeps. And the only, the, the best I could come up with with all these liquid battles, at least all the non-hand-to-hand ones, is that every time you're shooting at Liquid, whether it's in the Hind D, the Metal Gear Rex, or in this Jeep Escape, you're always in first-person view. So again, you're put in the eyes of Solid Snake shooting Liquid, which you know just kind of reinforces some of what Liquid was telling you earlier, or that kind of vantage point Liquid has onto you, the gamer. And this kind of piloted shooter vehicle sequence is something that Metal Gear Solid will generally incorporate into most of their games. Like Metal Gear Solid 2 does not have any, but Metal Gear Solid 3 has one. Metal Gear Solid 4 has three of them. And then in the open sandbox that is Metal Gear Solid 5, you can do it whenever you want if you really want to. But Uh, Revengeance does not have one either. So the Raiden games do not have them. Well, it wouldn't really make sense for what that game was doing, although I could imagine them coming up with a pretty dope Jeep slashing thing. Well, actually, no, wait, there might be, I think there might be one bit where he has, he's on like a turret, but it's not like, it's like a cutscene thing almost. It's not, it's not, it's all, it's impossible to lose, which this is also, but it's not like, it's not like the Shagohad fight, which is like kind of hard and annoying. Yeah, this this I don't I don't know if it's possible to die in this scene. Uh, it's po- maybe it is, but it, I've always been able to get through it. It doesn't seem like people die here, where people might have difficulties with say like the Rex battle or the liquid hand to hand battle. But in the end, you get to the end of the tunnel. Both your Jeep and Liquid's Jeep kind of get tangled up with each other. They both kind of flip. You're both kind of thrown. And Solid Snake uh, is pinned underneath his Jeep. And Liquid, again, somehow seems to have survived his crash. And he's slowly walking up to you with a gun in hand. And right before he gets to aim his gun and take his shot, you get the iconic where he starts having the Fox Die heart attack. And as he starts to, you know bend over keel over he says fox and then snake says die and so ends liquid snake first of his name yada 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 um and one thing i was thinking about this is you know liquid keeps surviving and then he dies because of fox die and that's again the game denying you the power fantasy of beating the villain what actually killed the big bad of this game was the fox eye disease that you were unknowingly injected with that you you were basically a patsy in all of this and not you know it wasn't your skill at arms or everything your resourcefulness that allowed you to take this victory Though I will say Snake takes it pretty well. He Yeah, he does take it well. I like that um I do I do like the the in universe logic that it takes Liquid Snake, a hardened, super tough mercenary, like a couple hours after being exposed to die, whereas it took like an old man like Kenneth Baker like five minutes. I actually think that tracks. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And I think there's maybe 
also something just to the fact uh, Solid Snake may or may not have been targeted by the Fox die. It's not totally clear from Naomi's, you know, ramblings, but, you know, you know, rip to your grandma, but Liquid and Solid are different. They're just survivors and <laughs> they might just have have higher tolerances or just, you know, they were designed to be super soldiers of a sense. And though they're not like fantastical super soldiers, like say the Captain America we discussed last episode, they are enhanced in a way that may give them just a preternatural ability to survive what, you know, would kill other people much quickly. But, you know, there might be a reason that Fox Die would target liquid and not solid. You can make up your reasons. And they have just that slight variation in DNA. We talked about that dominant recessive gene thing. So you, you, it could conceivably target one but not the other. I, I don't care about the, the science, really. Does it, does it matter? Oh, yeah, not at all. I only care, again, insofar as it informs character, theme, or story. Uh, what the actual science is, is who, who gives a shit? Does anyone actually know anything? I don't think so. Anyways, that will wrap us up for our analysis of the Foxhound unit. Next time, we will come back and wrap up Metal Gear Solid 1998 and discuss the themes that this game has played on that we've alluded to for all these episodes. It'll be a really great in-depth discussion. That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieres at gmail.com and podsansfront on Twitter and on Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've still been Brian, also known as Cosmos. We were all born with an expiration date. No one lasts forever. You, you know the thing. You say the thing. You know it. <laughs> There's a Joe Biden impression almost there for a second. <laughs> I do know the thing. No malarkey there. Quick shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. I think I just learned Apple is the only place you can actually leave reviews. So please do that. Five stars. That'll help us get our name out there. And, you know, we want to get our awesome, awesome content to as many people as possible. So until next time, remember, the best is yet to come.
the path you walk has no... Sorry, let me start again. 